This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the new, relaunched Challenging Opinions podcast. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but as part of the relaunch, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Dr. Robert Waltman, the Professor of Economics at the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. I hope you enjoy it. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. On a Skype line now, I have Robert Waldman. He is the Angry Bear blogger. He's also the professor of economics in the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. Um, Robert, you wrote a piece recently about not conceding too much to supply side economists. First of all, what is a supply side, what is supply side economics? Well, the phrase is used to refer to economists who think the key to good economic policy is to cut taxes, especially taxes on capital income. And the argument dating back now uh, 40 years is that this would cause higher uh, economic output and income, and therefore such tax cuts would not reduce the revenue collected by the government. And so it would provide, they would provide only benefits with no costs. Uh, this argument is dominant within the U.S. Republican Party, although it is not supported by evidence. Well, is there some evidence of it that, for example, if we go back to the time of Ronald Reagan, um, he cut taxes, the economy boomed, and the actual tax take increased? Uh, no. In fact, Ronald Reagan cut taxes, the economy contracted sharply, then he raised taxes, and the economy boomed. It's just not true that the U.S. experience from the 80s supports the supply-side view. In fact, uh, the new higher taxes were still lower than the taxes before Reagan, but uh, U.S. economic growth was faster on average with a top marginal tax rate of 91% than it has been since the Reagan-Kemp-Roth tax cuts, and uh, faster with a top marginal tax rate of 70%. What happened under Reagan is uh, really uh, Volcker, that when Reagan was elected, there was high inflation, that the Monetary Authority, the Federal Reserve Board, imposed a very tight monetary policy causing an extremely severe recession until inflation was lower and then switched to an expansionary monetary policy and the economy bounced back as it always does. There isn't any anomaly in growth uh, to be explained by anything else. 
In fact, in U.S. history, uh, the top tax rate on high income is positively correlated with economic growth, not negatively. And the story about the 80s is incomprehensible to me because I was alive then and remember what happened. What I want to ask then is if you say cutting taxes or increasing taxes, that doesn't exactly tell us the position because, of course, that doesn't tell us where the taxes were to begin with. I think you'd have to agree that if you put uh, taxes to the maximum and said 100% tax rate, then people would really not be have any incentive to go out to work. So that, that wouldn't be a realistic situation, would it? Well, there, there actually were marginal taxes over 100% for a while in Sweden uh, back in the good old days. And I think people did pay that. I'm not entirely convinced even that that is true. However, recall I said 91%. The U.S. economy worked fine with a marginal tax rate of 91% for many decades. So um, I'm not 100% sure that anyone has detected a tax rate so high that it has catastrophic incentive effects. But you're making an important point. Supply-side economists argue that tax rates should be cut. They do not argue that there's an optimal tax rate, which is lower than the current tax rate, and therefore tax rates should be cut. They always argue tax rates should be cut and are equally enthusiastic no matter what is the marginal tax rate. And so the argument um, can go the other way that um, to have a top marginal tax rate of zero, that is entirely eliminating income taxation, doesn't sound optimal. Would it, if we were in that situation, be the case that supply-side economists should argue that the tax rate should still be cut so that um, income should be subsidized based on some other tax? And the answer, I think, is certainly yes. They, they would continue to argue that tax rates are too high because they always do, no matter how low tax rates get. The argument is not at all affected. The intensity of the argument, the intensity of the conviction among basically the entire Republican Party is not at all affected by what tax rates actually are. And they will argue equally vehemently that 40% is intolerably high, as they argued that 70% was intolerably high. And with about equally strong evidence, meaning none. If we're saying that, surely there must be some optimal uh, top marginal tax rate. There's some. There must be some point at which the best uh, amount of income for government expenditure is made without deterring economic growth. Where do you think that, that point is? And do you think it changes? Well, here there'll be two types of answers. One will be coming from economists, academic economists. One will be a theoretical analysis, which will give, in which a lot of assumptions are made, and then the model implies an optimal tax rate. And the other will be a crude empiricism of looking at different countries in different times, and the top tax rate and economic growth, and then trying to control for everything else, certainly including the country, some countries typically grow fast, and the time period. And you can do this if you have a panel of countries um, with different tax rates at different times. That sort of um, 
crudely empirical analysis was performed by my student, Santo Milazzi, who is actually now working at the International Labor Office, okay, and um, provides estimates of the growth-maximizing tax rate that range, depending on the specification, from 50% to 70%. In any case, higher than currently observed top marginal tax rates. So that that atheoretic empiric analysis suggests that the opposite of the supply-side proposal would cause higher economic growth. So, Robert, in that case, if, and I think you're right, it's very difficult to consider that because there's so many confounding factors. But as a general principle, don't you think it's true that people spend their own money more carefully than they would spend, than perhaps a government official spending government money is, or that, uh, um, you know, if you're on an expense account, you might uh, treat yourself uh, a little bit better because you, the money isn't coming out of your own pocket. Don't you think that that means that in general, the economy will run more efficiently when people make decisions based on their own, based on getting best value for money, and that they're most likely to do that when they have more skin in the game? Um, well, that that's now a theoretical argument. I guess so far, that would be an argument about well-being in tax rates, not necessarily about economic growth in tax rates. And the data and the supply-side argument are about tax rates and economic growth. Here it's very clear that uh, free choice doesn't give maximum economic growth, not that there's any reason to care about maximum economic growth in itself, uh, so that uh, forcing people to save by penalizing consumption might cause more rapid economic growth and make everyone miserable. That said, I'm really not as convinced as I always used to be that uh, the, the market system is, is more efficient than, say, a bureaucratic administrative command and control system. The reason here, and this is now a new topic, is there's also been a bit of a debate about the financing of health care in the United States, where extraordinarily it was mostly, well, half in dollars, private sector in the U.S., when it's public everywhere else. And uh, people in the U.S. have more skin in the game. And I think the outcome of that accidental experiment of the U.S. compared to every other rich country will really strongly suggest that uh, uh, bureaucrats handling other people's money uh, do a much better job than people looking out for themselves can I suggest why that might be? Isn't it possible that, that that's because healthcare is very, very particular, very special, because nobody can really understand their own healthcare needs. If they knew what they needed from healthcare, they wouldn't need to go to the doctor. But aside from that, isn't it true that people in most markets, not healthcare, but most other markets, understand their own needs best? Okay. Well, first of all, that's, you know, a fifth of the US economy. And uh, cost twice as much in the U.S. as anywhere else with not so good outcomes. Yeah, and, I was looking at these figures that 17.2% yeah. of the U.S. GDP goes on healthcare. In Europe, it's typically less than 10%, but the, G the U.S. has a GDP that is higher, yes. so it's 17% of a higher number, so it's roughly uh, Americans are paying 
double for their health care. Double. Right. It means that public spending on health care in the U.S. is very high, even though the private spending is enormous, being equal to the public spending. And all of that doesn't seem to have led to, for example, a life expectancy as long as is typical in, well, for example, Italy, uh, whose health care system does not have the best reputation. All right. So that's one important argument. That's actually the first and original argument for the importance of asymmetric information economics by Kenneth Arrow, the smartest economist. Um, But let's consider another case, uh, another important thing that uh, the state does a lot of. Can I I throw you out another case? Um, The telephone markets, um, people generally don't understand how the telephone system works. They don't understand often how their telephone bill works, but they know when it's too high and they can make a choice between providers and competition in telecoms markets has massively pushed down uh, prices. And prices went down further and faster in the US than they did in Europe because the US had competition, more competition and earlier competition than in Europe. I think that shows the importance of public intervention in the telecoms market, regulation, and the state. The reason is the U.S. never had a public telephone monopoly. It was a private monopoly uh, controlled by AT&T. And because of regulation, the one of the oldest regulations in the U.S., the Sherman Antitrust Act, that private company was forced to allow competition. So I would agree, competition is a good thing, and that is why a powerful state which intervenes in the economy has been very good for the U.S. Right? The competition didn't occur out of free markets doing it themselves. No, no. Private sector monopoly, public intervention, forcing competition, a judge did that, not an entrepreneur. And the entrepreneurs would have a ability to provide telephone service more cheaply, had no way of competing with AT&T until a judge forced AT&T to let them use the the last mile, the last kilometer, um, to provide long-distance services using AT&T-owned telephones, which were the only telephones in the country, or to allow other companies to make telephones and sell them to people. That's all the result of regulation state intervention in the economy. There wouldn't be competition in U.S. telecoms markets if the private sector had been left to its own devices, which would be all AT&T-owned telephones where one could have service only from them. You can believe in competition, but that doesn't mean you believe in a weak state or deregulation. A very important part of regulation will be uh, restrictions on anti-competitive practices, The case of U.S. Telecom shows the advantages to the public of the state imposing its will on private firms. This is judges. These are court orders. This is the law, the antitrust law. So that you can believe in competition, but that doesn't mean you should believe that the state, in laissez-faire, that the state should leave the private sector alone. In that case, the case of telephones in the United States, the private sector on its own had a monopoly and the state intervened and then there was competition and that's what happened. Robert, can I can I put a different uh, scenario to you? You mentioned and we talked about uh, confounding factors, so it's often very t- difficult to 
compare one economic theory to another because there are so many variables in either over time or in different countries. Isn't one of the variables that's coming in um, complexity that maybe 150 years ago, Marx wrote the, the Communist Manifesto and he envisaged having a minister for coal running the coal mines and a minister for steel running the steel mills. That was not entirely implausible at the time because uh, in the capitalist countries, you had one big steel magnate running the steel companies and one big coal magnate running the coal companies. But isn't it true that now our economy is so complex that no one organization, regardless of whether it is uh, private or public, could even hope to control a large chunk of it. So, for example, Apple supposedly make iPhones, but they don't. The phones are made by a different supplier. They only design them. And that supplier receives parts from thousands of other suppliers. Isn't that indicating that as our economy gets more complex, less of that economy can be controlled by one organization, be it the government or anything else? Well, now I agree. Um, I certainly, uh, well, I don't agree with Marx. And um, that's moved quite far from what should the top marginal tax rate be. And even fairly far from... um, the simple question, which is more efficient, the public sector, the private sector. And at that point, yeah, sure, I totally agree. I think central planning did not work uh, well at all. And the reason, as argued many decades ago by many people, prominently including Hayek, who was right about this one, is that in the market system can react to something even if nobody knows about it and people only know what price they're offered in this local market for this or that good. And so sure, um, that uh, system of centralized command and control doesn't work very well. Well, it was tried and it didn't work very well. And that there are big advantages to a market system so that it would be silly to try to do without markets or uh, profit-seeking corporations. I entirely agree with that. But it's gotten very far from the question of do supply-side economists have anything useful to contribute? Well, the, the way the way that I think that it's relevant is that supply-side economists essentially want to move a larger proportion of the economy into the private sector by reducing taxes and, and leaving that wealth in the private sector. Isn't that inevitably going to be the case, given that uh, no one organization can control such a large portion of the economy as they used to? Uh, Well, I think one organization can control a larger portion of the economy than, say, the Swedish state does. That um, I think here there's a false binary between central direction or the market and uh, once we agree that there should be a state we don't like anarchy and on the other hand there should also be a market we don't want Stalinism Uh, what fraction of GDP should pass through the public treasury is a completely open question and um, is it better if it's about 50% or about 30% is 
I don't think a question that could be answered. Robert, thank you very much uh, for talking to me. Robert Waldman is the uh, blogger at angrybearblog.com. He's also professor of economics at the University of Rome at Torvegata. Thank you very much. What's your opinion? Can you explain it on the next show? Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. I have links in the show notes to Robert Waldman and his blog and other references for things we were talking about. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can do it on iTunes if you're an Apple person or on Google Play Music if you're on Android. And there's links for both of those as well as the RSS feed if you want that. You can find them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. On the next podcast, I'll have Dr. Jerome Hoyler. He's an economist as well, but a very different one to Robert Waldman. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.